Well, this morning we come to uh, Genesis chapter 19, and uh, it's the story of Lot and uh, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. It's also why we preach through books of the Bible, because this would be one that you might be tempted to just sort of ignore, but we're not going to do that this morning. We're going to take it face head on. And um, so if you have your worship folder there and you want to follow along, I'm going to read chapter 19. I think it's on page uh, 10 there in your worship folder. You can either follow along there or in your Bible or just listen or on your device. I guess I have to include that nowadays. I have friends that preach from an iPad and I don't know how they do that. But at any rate, Genesis chapter 19, let's listen to God's word. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do, them, do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out, groping for the door. Then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and said to his sons-in-law, who were to marry his daughters, Up, get out of this place, for the Lord is about to destroy the city. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. As morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand. The Lord being merciful to him, and they brought him out and set him outside the city. And as they brought them out, one said, Escape for your life. Do not look back or stop anywhere in the valley. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, Oh no, my lords. Behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills lest the disaster overtake me and die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there, 
Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew these cities, those cities and, the, and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with their father. And he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is the word of the Lord. So, there you have it. Uh, there's, there's, this is a crazy story. There's goofy stuff in here, stuff that I think is stomach-churning and rightly should be. And among many things we could say about this story it is a story that I think reminds us that the, the Bible is not a uh, sterile book. It's not a book that uh, is um, trying to put in front of you a cast of characters of moral virtue and a cast of characters who make all the right decisions. It is a cast of characters that resembles real life. Uh, albeit far removed from our current cultural moment and day and time. Nevertheless, people faced with circumstances and situations and consequences uh, of their own making, some of them not their own making, and having to figure out what to do. It is far from a sterile uh, book of aphorisms and moral virtues of which you're just supposed to slap onto your life. And what we've been saying is that Genesis is the first book that Moses wrote to God's people on their way to the promised land. And I've said every week that, you know, we tend to think of the good news or the gospel as primarily a New Testament idea. 
But you see, the story of Abraham just blows that whole, whole idea apart, and it's much bigger and richer than that. In fact, the New Testament tells us that God preached the good news to Abraham beforehand, that is, before Jesus came. And therefore, what we discover is that the good news of God, his gospel, begins at the very early chapters of the Bible, particularly with the story of Abraham. And at the very same time, what we've been noticing is there's so much of Abraham's story, though, that seems to argue against this story as a good news story. So many things in Abraham and Sarah's life seem to suggest that this really isn't a good news story. God's promises aren't coming to pass. And then we come into stories like chapter 19, and you begin to wonder again, if this really is a good news story, this is a really strange way to communicate it. Now, that might be our response, but think for a moment. Isn't that sound a lot more like your real life? The ups and downs, the fits and starts, the questions and the wondering, the longing and the waiting, the hurting and the pain, and discovering from time to time God's promises really are true. And they always have been. And perhaps whatever the circumstances we face, the reality of it is not that God has ever wavered, but that we tend to waver. And this is a story for people like that to teach us again and again that though we waver, though life looks like the opposite of good news, God remains the same forever. And so I want to begin looking at this story from chapter 19 by asking you the question, here's this character Lot, and we have encountered him already. Lot came out of the land of Haran back in chapter 12 with Abraham and Sarai at the time and journeyed to the land of Canaan, which God promised that he would give to Abraham and to his descendants forever, and through him he would bless the nations. And then we don't really hear too much about Lot until we get to chapter 13. Uh, Abraham and Sarah and Lot have been in Egypt because there had been a famine in the promised land, and they've now come back in chapter 13. And the narrator doesn't tell us how this happens, but he does tell us that Abraham had great possessions, flocks, all kinds of assets that in the ancient Near East amounted to a very rich, wealthy man. And Lot had become very wealthy as well as he was attached to Abraham and benefiting from being a part of his family. And yet, in chapter 13, we discover there's conflict. Lot and his herdsmen have conflict with Abraham and his herdsmen. And Abraham says, look, I don't want conflict. Look, there is the land before you. You pick what you want, and you go that way and you take it, and I'll go the other way. And what happens is Lot, he sees the Jordan Valley. So this is the, to the east of Canaan, to the east of the promised land, which is never a good direction to go in the story, just so you know. It, but it looks great. And Lot says, I want that. And so he moves his tent very near Sodom and Gomorrah. And I just want to pause there and ask the question, why is Lot even in the story? This is really important. Because if you don't understand this, if you're reading through the Abraham story, 
you're likely to get to this bit about Lot and be like, man, this just seems like totally irrelevant. Like, why is this here? And uh, what I want you to think about for a moment is, is, is if you ever had an English class and somebody taught you or talked about a literary foil, a literary foil, all literary foil is is a character in the story who is intended to be a contrast to the main character in order to highlight characteristics and features of the main character. Does that make sense? Lot is a foil. He is meant to be a contrast to Abraham in order to show us what we're really supposed to see about Abraham. Lot demonstrates a totally different way of living. Now, how could we summarize that? Lot is in this short story to show us the difference between living by faith and living by sight. The distinct difference between Abraham and Lot throughout this whole story, particularly in chapter 13, In order to resolve this conflict, when Abraham says, you pick the land, the text says, Lot saw, he looked up and he saw, and he went. Lot was living by sight. In contrast to that, Abraham, God reminds him, and and God says to Abraham, Abraham, lift up your eyes and look at this land that didn't look like it was flourishing. And said, That's the land that I'm going to give you and your descendants. Will you trust me to do it? Living by faith. So this whole story here is really intended to show us what does it look like to live by faith by showing us what it looks like not to do that. It's a contrast. And if you think about this and you remember that this story first was written for God's people on the way to the promised land, how important is this? Because what were God's people so tempted to do as they were journeying to the promised land? It was to return back to Egypt, to what they had seen, to what they remembered. Despite the fact it was 400 years of living in slavery, what they were having a hard time doing was living by faith, following God to the place they had never seen and didn't know what it was going to be like. So this story is really the alternative to living by faith and where does it lead and it's therefore it serves as a warning to us chapter 19 and so the question i want us to just to look at this morning is how is that so how is it a warning and we're going to look at the tragedy of lot the judgment of god and the unexpected outcome so first let's look at the tragedy of lot remember lot's place in the story it really picks up in chapter 13 where there's this conflict with Abraham. And Abraham gives him the, the choice of the land again. And, 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 and Lot picks the, the, the flourishing Jordan Valley. And Lot settles among the cities as far as Sodom in a tent. He's not yet in the city, but he's right outside. He's right near. He's moving away from Abraham, the one to whom God has made his promises. And we learn back in chapter 13 
that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So we already have been introduced to this place, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the character of it. And yet, Lot is moving in that direction. Not only that, we notice in chapter 14 that as Lot has moved his tent near Sodom, Lot gets caught up in the warring kings of chapter 14. And along with the people of Sodom and Gomorrah gets carried off with the losing kings into captivity and bondage and slavery. And yet Abraham hears about it. He comes and he rescues Lot. And he brings him back. And all the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and the other kings connected with those cities. He rescues them. And very interesting and strikingly, Lot still chooses to live right near Sodom. And not only that, as the story unfolds, we understand that Lot now lives in the city and has built a house in the city. And he's even gained some prominence because he's sitting at the gate, which is a sort of technical term uh, for uh, a man of uh, prominence. In verse 1 of our story here, it says, The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate. The city gate was where the action was. The movers and shakers, that's where they hung out. It's where they did business. That's where people came to get things done, and Lot is in that mix. So, Lot has continued to move further and further away from the man of faith, from Abraham, the one to whom God has made promises and through whom to bless the world. And not only that, when we come into this story, the tragedy of, tragedy of Lot enters into his very own personal life when we see his failure as a father while he attempts to be a good host when these two angels, these two messengers of God who have come to Sodom to check out this cry of wickedness that has come up from the city. And all of these men, in verse 4, every single man of the city, the text goes to great lengths to show nobody here is left out, come to find out about these two men who are now under Lot's roof. And the term here we, that we may know them is not just to make a social acquaintance. In the Bible, very frequently that term to know is one of sexual intimacy. Earlier on, when uh, Adam knew his wife, that was the Bible's way of saying that they became one flesh. This is a graphic story of a very uncomfortable kind. And here, Lot, with these two uh, messengers under his roof trying to protect them, seemingly undermines everything about his life that could be considered virtuous because he offers his two daughters to this crazed crowd who have never been with a man. It's just one of those moments in the Bible where you're just like, that's just unthinkable. I can't imagine somebody doing that. And commentators talk about, you know, the, the, the prime importance in this culture and time of when someone comes down under your house, that is a, a sacred act that is inviolable. And some commentators suggest, too, even Lot's suggestion of giving his daughters to this, this crowd of men with very ill intent 
is really meant to stress how bad their plan is because it was a capital offense to abuse a woman who had been betrothed to a man. It's just a really screwed up situation all the way around. And Lot is at the center of this as a failure. Not only that, Lot is unable to persuade his two sons-in-law. They think he's a joke, that he's not for real. And then in verses 15 and 17, when the time has come and the messengers come to, to Lot to say to leave, he lingers, he waits, he doesn't want to leave, despite the threat of imminent danger and destruction. And so too does his wife, who's behind him. She's not with him, she's behind him, and she is caught up in the destruction of the city. So Lot's story ends in a cave outside of the city with nothing except his two daughters. It is a far cry from where he was in chapter 13 when he was with Abraham and had great possessions and the fellowship of Abraham, the man of faith, the one God had promised to bless the world through It's a tragic story. And here's the point of this story for us. that For Lot, his story was a slow process of lingering, of drifting, of wandering from the God of promise and blessing. A 25-year process is in view here a little bit at a time, moving further and further away from God's promise and further and further in to a place that is a metaphor for everything that is contrary to God's design. And the main problem, if we could bring it to one word, is this idea of lingering. It's why we read from Luke 17 earlier. At the end of which, when... Jesus says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. And elsewhere, Jesus is recorded as saying, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, for Jesus' sake, will keep it. Lot's story is a painful but vivid picture of almost unnoticeable trajectory of the human heart over a period of time, lingering and drifting from God and his promises and his good news. So that's the tragedy of Lot, but what about the judgment of God? As I've hinted at already, this story of Sodom and Gomorrah is it's often a touch point of discussion and debate about the Bible because particularly it's one of the six most cited passages about the topic of homosexuality. It's an uncomfortable story because it's a story that has all kinds of features of violence and mistreatment and abuse of the most soul-crushing, dehumanizing kind. And what I want us to see here is oftentimes Sodom and Gomorrah is treated as only a passage that's dealing with this, the, the topic of homosexuality. But elsewhere in the Bible, what I want you to see is Sodom and Gomorrah was known for social oppression. 
from the prophet Isaiah, from adultery, lying, and protecting and harboring criminals, from prophet Jeremiah, and arrogance and complacency and disregard for the weak and needy, from the prophet Ezekiel. In other words, what I want you to get here is that Sodom and Gomorrah is a metaphor, though it was real, for a place and a culture and a time that represents everything contrary to God's original design and intention, whether sexual, whether marital, whether economic, whether social, whether political, everything about it. And when it comes to the topic of God's judgment, even if we sort of see Sodom and Gomorrah in that light, the topic of God's judgment is often really hard for us. Because stories like this, God's judgment is, it seems so sudden and drastic and violent and even perhaps unfair. How did these people know this was coming? Did they ever have a chance to consider another option? Well, let me, let me get you to think of it this way. If you're following me at all with how the Bible understands Sodom and Gomorrah, there's another way to look at this. And ask this question, if God didn't act justly towards Sodom and Gomorrah, would he really be a God worth listening to and believing? Think about this for a moment. As uncomfortable as this story is, if God did not judge justly the actions and beliefs and practices of Sodom and Gomorrah, would he be a God worth believing and trusting? If he allowed that kind of abuse and mistreatment to happen and go unchecked. My guess is every one of us in here would say, if God did, does not stop that, if he does not hate that, that is not a God worth trusting. That is not a God worth listening to. That means he doesn't care about real injustice real pain and suffering that others inflict on other people. So then I want us to think about, if that's the case, what do we learn about God's judgment here? Let me briefly mention a few things. First of all, God has shown undeserved mercy to Sodom and Gomorrah through Abraham. When did he do that? Back in chapter 14. Remember, Sodom and Gomorrah had been captured. Who comes to their rescue? Abraham. And restores them. All of their women and children and all of their possessions. And yet, what happens? There is no hint in the story that the king of Sodom, as the representative of Sodom, is wooed into. Perhaps the God of Abraham. Perhaps this is where we need to be. Perhaps this God is really the God we need to trust and listen to. There's no hint of it. God has already made overtures of grace and mercy to an undeserving people. But second, God's judgment isn't hasty. It's not rash. It's not uh, he lost his temper. It's measured and it's calculated. Let me show you how. Back in chapter 18, in verse 20 to 21, we're told the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down... To see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, 
I will know. This is not a rash, temperamental, prone to anger God. It's calculated. It's measured. He's doing his homework. To the point where in chapter 19, verse 13, what we read there, for he says, these are the two messengers. We are about to destroy this place because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. He's done his work. It's calculated. He knows what he's doing. It's not rash. Thirdly, before judgment comes, he actually gives opportunity to repent. Look in verse 7. This is Lot speaking to all of these people at his door. He says, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Here is an opportunity to repent, to turn. But, despite that, when they don't, God will not allow wickedness to go unpunished. And as we see in the story, Sodom and Gomorrah are ruined. Now, what's the point here? This is a cautionary tale. When sin and wickedness go unchecked, if you think about it, it's an echo of the flood narrative. Not to the same degree, but that's the same idea, the same themes. It is a sober and dark story. And God's judgment rightly should be humbling. And there's a really important, poignant question we've got to address here. It's humbling, but it also is good news. What it means, this story, God will not allow sin and wickedness to win. But here's the question. How can God deal justly with sin, not just in general out there, in places like this story, Sodom and Gomorrah, but how can God deal with sin in you? And in me, that is just, and not lose us. That's really the question here. How can God be the one who is just and the justifier of the ungodly? How's that possible? And that brings us to the unexpected outcome. First of all, what what I want you to notice about the outcome of the story is what is driving the whole story. Look here in verse 27. Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord. This is back from chapter 18, when Abraham is interceding and pleading with God. Remember, he has this series of questions. If for 50 righteous people, would you spare it? For 40, would you spare it? For 10, would you spare it? Because Lot is there. Despite how far Lot is off from where Abraham is. Abraham has not stopped demonstrating love for his estranged nephew. His folly and his uh, lack of wisdom. Abraham is at the place where he was. He looks down on Sodom and Gomorrah toward the land and he sees the smoke of the land after God had destroyed it. Verse 29, So it was that when God destroys the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham. What's driving this story is God and his commitment to his promises to Abraham and through Abraham. However, this is the end of the story for Lot. We don't hear of Lot again. He vanishes from the story. 
He's referred to in later points, but this is the end of Lot's journey in the biblical narrative. And what I want you to see here is it ends in this most weird way where the two daughters are with their father living in fear in a cave with no prospects for a future. And they hatch this plan to get their father drunk in order that they might have children by their father. If that's just really kind of weird to you, it's supposed to be. This is not normal in the Bible by any stretch, let alone our own current day and time. But what's really unexpected is the two sons that are born to Lot become the fathers of two nations, Moab and Ammon, the Moabites and the Ammonites, who really are hostile enemies to Israel in the story. And the most unexpected twist, though, comes when we encounter this one woman, Ruth. There's a whole book, the book of Ruth. And you know where Ruth is from. She's Ruth the Moabitess. From this people who are enemies to God's people. And Ruth journeys with Naomi. She meets Boaz. And Ruth becomes the grandmother to King David, from whom the son of David is descended, the Lord Jesus. And she, Ruth, the Moabite, from this terrible, dark, tragic story, is forever etched in the lineage of Jesus. Just go look at Matthew chapter 1 and his genealogy. She's right there. Now, what are we supposed to take from that? What I want you to hear about this, this story, however dark and full of judgment it is, there is still a bigger story going on. God reweaving the story of Lot through Ruth into this greater, bigger story of good news that leads us to Jesus. And here is the answer to this question. How can God be just with you and not lose you? Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we, that is you who trust in Jesus, might become the righteousness of God. How can God deal with your sin and not end you? It's because Jesus became your sin. He took your place. He bore the punishment you deserve. To put it into our story, Jesus was left in Sodom and Gomorrah and destroyed so that you might go free. Now, where do we end here? Remember, Lot's the opposite of Abraham. He lived by sight and he lost everything. But then we also have Abraham. He's the man of faith. Not just in this part of the Bible, but throughout the Bible, he is the man of faith. And yet... If you've been following, he has struggled mightily and continues to struggle to live by faith. So here's the question. Who can really do this? Who can really live by faith? And the answer is simple. Nobody. However much Abraham is hailed as the man of faith, he fails again and again. You and I fail again and again. 
Who can really live by faith? And the only answer to that is Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can live by faith and never waver. My favorite illustration of this is in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night Jesus was betrayed, he prays to his father and he says, Father, let this cup pass from me. If there's another way to do what has to be done, please, let's do that. But if not, your will be done. That's living by faith and not by sight. And Jesus has come to live by faith and not by sight for us in order to give us by grace what we could never get or do on our own. You see, Jesus, if you put it this way, his number one priority in your life is to work by his spirit into you a life of faith and put to rest, to put to death, a life of sight. Until that great day when we see him face to face, when we see him not with eyes of faith, but with our own eyes, as we are resurrected, as he has come back and returned bodily to be with us forever. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for even stories like this that are um, visceral, that are uncomfortable, that are full of um, actions and decisions that are um, repugnant. And yet, in, in a very real way, they, they reveal the, the, the darkness of our own hearts and our need for your judgment, for your justice, for you to deal with sin and yet in such a way that we are not lost in the process. And we praise you and thank you that because of Jesus, we can be sure that there is forgiveness, that there is mercy, that there is welcome. Because Jesus has borne it, that he has suffered in our place, and he is alive from the dead and now lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit forever. In whose name we pray, amen.